I've never had a heart attack. And I'm glad of that. But, uh, but I'm getting to the age where uh, you start thinking about what that pain in your chest might be and uh, why your left arm feels funny when your right arm feels okay. And, you know, someday it might happen. Well, just imagine with me uh, if you were at my advanced age of 55, which for many of you takes imagining, for a few of you it takes remembering, <laughs> which I find encouraging. But let's say you start having a pain in your chest and, uh, and your left arm feels kind of tingly and you've, you've heard or watched enough ER on TV or some television show that you know you should go to the hospital. So you do and you go to the emergency room and you come in and a guy in a white you know, doctor's coat comes in and he says, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Bob and I'm a cardiologist and... The lady checking in said that you may be having a myocardial infarction, and uh, I'm here to fix your cardiovascular system for you. And he's used a whole lot of big words. You're not exactly sure what all of those means. I'm not sure exactly what all of those mean. And so you naturally have some questions you might want to ask the guy, right? You know, and uh, to make my sermon work, you have to be ask him four questions. So if you're not, if you're not this naturally curious, just, just work with me. So uh, you might say, you know, well, that's great. What, what is a cardiologist? And what's a cardiovascular system? And while we're at it, what does a cardiologist do? And why are you messing with me? And how are you going to fix me? Well, you might ask those questions, and, you know, the doctor might be impatient. But let's say he, he decides to go ahead and answer your questions, but what if when he went to answer the questions, he said, well, you know, a cardiologist is kind of a special kind of doctor. I'm not, I'm not really sure about it. I'm not sure I could really define it. But, you know, but did I mention I'm really passionate about being a doctor? And uh, I love helping people. And, you know, I'm not really sure about this cardiologist thing. But, uh, and that myocardial infarction thing, it's a really big word. I read it off of something. And... Uh, but did I mention that I'm really passionate about being a doctor and helping people? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm zealous and sincere. And that should be enough for you, right? Um, well, yeah. If, uh, if I had a doctor that said that to me, I'm pretty sure if I was physically capable, I would run away. All right? And I hope you'd have the sense to do that. But not to start this on a little bit of a downer critical note, but in, in my 20 years as a, as a local church pastor and 10 years that I spent on the board of trustees for a, a fairly large mission sending agency, I have to say I've, I've been shocked over the last two decades how many times I've basically had that conversation. Not about, not about heart attacks, thankfully. I've never had a heart attack. Did I mention that? But but about the work of missions and about the local church where I've talked to people and, and I've actually directly asked them, like, what, what does it really mean to be a missionary? And what is actually from the Bible? What is a local church anyway? And they've said, I don't really know. It's like a special kind of person that does gospel stuff someplace where they don't live. Um, but did I mention I'm really passionate about people loving Jesus and I'm really sincere 
And the local church, well, you know, I think I've, I've read about it sometimes. You know, I'm not exactly sure exactly what it's for and what it does. But did I mention that I'm really passionate about people coming to know Jesus, and I'm zealous, and I'm sincere? Well, I didn't run away from people like that. But, but I think being able to answer those questions is actually kind of important. Because if we don't really know who we are, and we don't really know what we're doing, we might just, in God's kindness, we might stumble into something good. But it doesn't seem very likely. So I think it'd be good, as we close out this, uh, this evening, this afternoon, and I'm not planning to go till evening, but this afternoon, afternoon, short talk, don't be fearful. I think it'd be good if, if we asked four questions, kind of like what the doctor did, just these four questions, and this isn't really an expositional talk, but it is kind of, sort of, but I'm kind of cheating. But we're going to have four different passages of Scripture we're going to look at. But they're short. Relax. It'll be fine. Um, and we're going, to, we're going to try to answer four questions as we look at these four passages of Scripture. And the four questions that will be sort of the outline for the talk are this. Just number one, it's really simple stuff here. What is a missionary? What is a missionary? And number two, what are missionaries, I'm sorry, for what purpose are missionaries sent? For what purpose are missionaries sent? And number three, why are they sent? Why are they sent? And number four, how do they faithfully fulfill their mission? So what is a missionary? Essentially, what are they sent to do? Number three, why are they sent to do it? And number four, how do they do it faithfully? And I hope as we think about those four things and look briefly at some scriptures along with it, maybe God will help us to think better about what it means to either pastor local churches where we want to send people out to expand you know, the knowledge of Christ in his church. And if, if you're someone who's been sent as a missionary, you know, it's not too late to have a better, more biblical understanding of what the Holy Spirit sent you to do, regardless of what the human beings understood at the time. So let's, let's start with the first definition. What is a missionary? <clears throat> well, I think we can look at Acts chapter 13. And I, I'd love it if you'd flip in your Bibles. I'm only asking you to do it I'm actually sneakily going to do it five times, just to be honest, but, but mainly four times. And the first is just Acts chapter 13, starting in verses 1 to 4. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture uh, talking about uh, the time when the church in Antioch sent out Barnabas and, <coughs> and Saul, later called Paul. Let me read, starting in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. We read, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Many of you may have heard talks on this particular passage of Scripture. It's the, it's the first time there in the New Testament that we see a local church specifically identifying and sending out individuals as missionaries. Now, there's some unique stuff here, right? It, it involves Paul, who's an apostle, so that makes it kind of confusing. How much of this is the apostle stuff? How much is this us stuff? But it's really helpful. God, in his kindness, like, stuck Barnabas along with Paul, so, you know, None of us are big A apostles like Paul was, writing the New Testament, and that kind of stuff. But Barnabas, like, he seems to be kind of a regular guy, like most of us. And we know that later, when Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement, Barnabas grabs John Mark and goes off to do pretty much the same missionary stuff that Paul was doing. So, at least to my small and simple mind, that kind of simplifies this for me, because I'm like, well, you know... I'm not sure that Paul is always a model for what we should be doing as non-apostles, but Barnabas seems pretty safe. So I feel like I can, can jump on this passage, at least if I'm looking at Barnabas, and get some principles that are helpful. So, so who was it that the Holy Spirit sent out through the church in Antioch? And I've always found it fascinating. You know, This is not the way I think you should send out missionaries, but I've always found it fascinating that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to Paul and Barnabas. The Holy Spirit speaks to the elders and who knows who else is around at the church in Antioch, which I think God intends to just sort of underline with a nice Sharpie marker that it's the local church that does the sending. But Paul is, Paul is an apostle, but God doesn't speak to him through the Holy Spirit. God speaks to the local church in Antioch and tells them, set apart. Paul and Barnabas, actually Barnabas first, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I've called them to. Now, you know, I don't, I don't suggest that as a pattern that you should, you know, go up to your members and say, like, the Holy Spirit has spoken to me, and this is your plane ticket, and, you know, you're heading out to this country. You know, I think, I think human willingness and involvement, we don't know what else is going on, but, but I think what it does say is it, it tells us, well, well, what is a missionary? Well, it's, it's an elder-qualified man, I'm getting very specific, who is sent out by a local church for a particular purpose, the, the work that the Holy Spirit had set them apart for. And at this point in the narrative, we don't know exactly what that work is, but we can read through the rest of the book of Acts, and it's really easy to figure it out. You know, what, what did Paul and, Paul and Barnabas go and do? Well, they, they went around on several missionary journeys together and then separately, and they, they did kind of what we would expect. They, they declared what the gospel message was in places where Christ was not named, and they defined who is and who is not a Christian by those that they would baptize or not baptize and include into the church or not include into the church. And we get some hints of this when Paul's, you know, talking to the Corinthians and he can't quite remember who he baptized, but he's really clear, I didn't baptize very many of you. And he's in this particular context in Corinthians, he's saying, well, I'm glad I didn't baptize you so you can't say I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. But the underlying point is, it seems like he didn't baptize a lot of the Corinthians. He just got the church started, and then the church took responsibility for it. I think that's, I think that's a good way of understanding what is a missionary. It's someone who's sent out 
particularly an elder qualified man sent out by a local church to, with some sort of authority that I can't quite exactly define, but sent out by the local church to go to a new place and define what is the gospel message and who is and who is not a Christian. They do that by faithfully proclaiming the gospel and by gathering a church that will then, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, define who is and who is not a Christian. Now, uh, you might ask, well, am I saying only missionaries can only be men? No, I don't think so. I think, again, if we read through the New Testament, I think I'm hard-pressed to find a missionary team in the New Testament that isn't led by what seems to be an elder-qualified man. But then along with them, there are regularly other men that are helpers. There are women that seem to be assistants that are helping. So, so if I'm going to write a definition, what is a missionary? I'm going to say an el- elder qualified man sent out by a local church or a group of churches and those who assist them to define what is the gospel and who is and who is not a Christian. I think as best I can understand from the New Testament, that's what it means to be a missionary. Now, I understand that that very limited definition may frustrate some people, because I think there are some people that may feel like they've just been sort of unmissionary. Well, that's fine. Like, everybody doesn't have to be a missionary in the sense that the New Testament says it. Like, everybody isn't a pastor. I think it's interesting. Everybody doesn't need to be a prophet. Everybody isn't a teacher. Apparently, there were other people in the church in Antioch. You know, our, our worth isn't wound up in having some sort of title, even if it's an extra-biblical title, like missionary. Like, Christians can go and do all sorts of good stuff. I sometimes think some of the most useful things I've done were not things that had a biblical title attached to them. But, as I think John Piper has noted, if, you know, if we underline everything, nothing is underlined. If everybody's a missionary, then nobody's a missionary. Let's be realistic about it. So, I encourage... I encourage you to think through what's your definition of someone that would be doing this sort of this sort of church planting work or be a part of a sort of church planting team and then have another category for like really faithful Christians who may be doing really good stuff that God may build all sorts of wonderful things on in a country other than the one they're normally from and they're doing good gospel stuff. But as best I can understand, that's how I would define what is a missionary. That's that's. Those are the people that John will look at later, says in his third letter, those are the people that have a special claim on the resources of the church. We ought to support people like that. We don't support every Christian who moves to another country. We support certain people. I think it's people that are doing this kind of work. I think that's, that's what a missionary is. Number two, what's the purpose for which they're sent? Because you know, if we can't define why we're here, we're not likely going to succeed at except just by God's providence or chance, at doing what we've been sent to do. And that's where I think it can be helpful to look at Acts chapter 15. So if you want to flip from Acts 13 over to Acts 15, I think we'll get a good idea of the purpose behind why missionaries are sent out. Now, at the outset, I understand Acts chapter 15 is a really complicated passage to try to build stuff on. Because there are things in Acts chapter 15 that, from my understanding of Scripture, are one-time-only salvation historical events that are never to be repeated. So 
the, the Jerusalem Council you know, only happened one time. It's not a pattern for other church meetings. It's something that God calls to happen at one time in salvation history in order to settle the question of the relationship between the Mosaic, the Old Testament law, and what it means to be a Christian. And that's what that council in Jerusalem was doing, and we don't do that anymore, all right? But I think there were events going on that God in his sovereign providence used to cause the Jerusalem council to happen. And those events that were going on around the Jerusalem council, sadly, I think those events happen a lot. I think they happen today. And what was the event that happened? <coughs> well, we read about it in verse 1 of chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea at the church in Jerusalem and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate. Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. So, so what is it that sort of caused the Jerusalem council? Well, it was some, you know, use a technical Texas term, some knuckleheads that decided just to go out on their own and kind of be self-sent missionaries to the city of Antioch. And they did what people like that often do. They made a mess. And they began teaching something that wasn't true. I assume they were sincere. I assume they had the best of intentions, but they created a mess. And so Paul and Barnabas and some other guys went back to the church in Jerusalem to see what they could do about it. A bunch of stuff happens. A bunch of people talk. It's very useful, but I'm going to skip over it to verse 24 of chapter 15. Where, where you get the message from the church in Jerusalem, which is the apostles, but also is the elders of the church in Jerusalem. It's not just the apostles speaking, but it's the, it's the church there. And they send a letter back, and we read in verse 24, this is what part of what the letter said. Since we've heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. So, what was it that the church in Jerusalem sent these men to do? Well, they sent them to do several things, I think. I think the one-time salvation historical thing that they were sent to do was to clarify the relationship between the Old Testament law and what it means to be saved. But I think with around that, they were doing something else. They were, they were doing, in one sense, I think, what every faithful church does when it sends people out as missionaries. They selected certain men who they knew to be faithful, and they sent them to define what is really the biblical gospel as opposed to what these other self-sent guys had said and to define who is and who is not a Christian. <coughs> so, what, what is it that missionaries are sent to do? 
they're sent to do on a regular basis those those larger things to to clarify what's the gospel message as opposed to some of the things that are floating around in the culture and who is really a Christian and then to strengthen churches when they exist so so I think you you have you know missionaries like Paul who who wanted to go to places where Christ had not been named but you have also efforts of a church to help strengthen another church. There was a church gathered there in Antioch, at least a proto-church that had, you know, whatever it means. What does a proto-church mean? I don't know. There, there were Christians. I like, I, sometimes you say words, and you're like, I don't even like that word. I can't believe I said it. But there was, there's, forget that. Strike that from the record. But there were, there were at least Christians in Antioch, and they were beginning to want to form a church. And the church in Jerusalem was strengthening them and helping them and sending people to, to help them. And we know that's, that's kind of what Paul and Barnabas were going to do before they got mad at each other over whether they should take John Mark along. They were going to go back and visit all the brothers and check on the churches and see how they were doing. So, so what are missionaries sent to do? Well, there's this definition thing that I've said a bunch of times. I won't repeat it again. But also to strengthen and help churches where they, where they exist or where they're growing up. So I think, you know, there are, there are some missionaries who go places and they gather a congregation and they sort of, they sort of hand the work over to the local church as quickly as is wise and reasonable. And then maybe they move on somewhere else. And there are those that I think may stay and teach and try to strengthen the local church. Um, I think both of those are great things for people to do. That's, but what is a missionary sent to do? Primarily, missionaries are sent to new places to gather churches by defining what is the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. And the church then will begin to do that until Christ returns through who they admit to baptism and who they allow to take the Lord's Supper. Well, why are missionaries sent out for this specific purpose? And I think, I think sometimes the way that we talk about missions sounds a lot more like network marketing than it does you know, the Bible. And I don't know, some of you may be fortunate to be from places where they don't have network marketing, but in, in America, it, it often means like, you know, how to sort of monetize all your relationships in order to sell stuff. You know, you take what's your network, you sort of get to know them. And often these network marketing schemes are based on the idea of recruiting other people so that you build this big pyramid of people doing stuff. And I've heard people talk about missions kind of in that way. Well, the church, you know, we, we have one church and it plants two churches and each one of those churches plants two churches. And, you know, with a certain number of doublings and everybody in the country will be in a church and presumably a Christian. Well, you know, we want the church to grow. We want to see the church planting other churches. But it's just good to remember there's, there's a whole lot more going on than just growth, than just expansion, than even, dare I say, just church planting. For that, we need to get out of the book of Acts and turn to the book of Ephesians. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, you have one of those rare moments in the Bible where God sort of pulls back the curtain on his motivation. God God doesn't actually do that very much in the Bible. He doesn't tell us why. You know, the Israelites wanted to know why he chose them. 
And he said, well, it certainly wasn't because you're the, you know, the biggest people, not because you're the greatest people. He said, you know, I, I chose to set my love on you because I love you. They don't really get a good why. Why is God doing what he's doing in the world? He doesn't give us a lot of whys, but he does in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, he explains what he's doing in the world through his church. And he says this in verse 10. <clears throat> what is all this gospel stuff for? This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So, do you ever think about what a high view God has of his plan for missions? Do you ever think about what, what a high view God has for the local church? God, God doesn't say in his word through the Apostle Paul, he doesn't say that he simply you know, is, is doing all of this so that I can save a certain number of people or so that I can build my church, or so that the kingdom will be expanded. And those are all good things to be doing. But God has another underlying motivation. You know, why are missionaries sent out? Why are church planters sent to gather new churches? Well, so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. I don't even know exactly what that means, but it seems to mean like to the whole watching universe, to not just even human beings, but that God intends through his church to make his plan that he had before the foundation of the earth to send his own son to live a perfect life and to die as a substitute to purchase the salvation of everyone who would ever turn and trust in him. That plan, which seems so foolish, God intends to vindicate that plan and show that it was immensely multifaceted in its wisdom. Every way you turn it, it looks wise. God intends to make that clear through his church. And I understand that he doesn't say churches. He says through his church, through all of those he's saving throughout time and eternity. But you know, that wisdom becomes visible for people to see and to delight in and to recognize his multifaceted wisdom in local churches. When people gather together and God is seen to be wise in his plan to gather Christians in these little embassies of heaven, in these societies. Did you ever, did you ever think about the fact that that's what God's doing in missions. I think, we, I think we, we may think vaguely about God's glory. That's a good thing. It's good for our motivation for church planting and missions to be something more than just you know, expanding numbers and recruiting new, new people. But there's, there's a specific way God intends to be glorified, and that's that his plan would be seen to be gloriously wise. God says that the church made visible in these local expressions is his plan to make the glory of his wisdom known 
to all the watching intelligences in the universe. That means that those that we would send and the way we would send them, I think takes on an even weightier significance. It's not just about recruiting. It's not just about sending people out and seeing, you know, what might or might not work or might or might not stick. But the, the reputation, the wisdom, and the glory of God is at stake in what we're doing. That's why people are sent. Which brings us to our fourth question that we should think about for a few minutes. How do those that are sent, how do they faithfully fulfill their mission? Well, I think they do it the same way we do anything faithfully, by obeying the priorities and the commands of God's word. How do they fulfill their mission? By obeying the priorities and commands of God's word. And in one sense, all of the New Testament is answering that question. I don't think we can reduce it to a single proof text. The New Testament is written to missionary church planters like Titus or Timothy. It's written to to new churches that are figuring out how do we faithfully vindicate the wisdom of God through our life together, through our holiness, through our faithfulness, through our faithfulness to send and plant other churches. But I do think I found 2 Corinthians really helpful. This is our fourth passage to turn to. 2 Corinthians, particularly chapter 4. If we look at the first two verses, Paul, in in vindicating his own missionary and apostolic work, He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. So what's one way scripturally to understand how those that are sent out faithfully fulfill their mission? Well, they they do it first in verse 1 by persevering, by just continuing and doing the ministry that they've been given. And you notice it's interesting. Paul says, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Different translations handle this differently, but the, the point he seems to be making is that, that you know, we have this ministry the same way we have our salvation. Like we, we have this ministry the same way we have everything else. It's a gift from God. Because we have this ministry the same way we were shown mercy, just because God chose to give it to us. Because of that, because it comes from God's hand, because it's his choice and his action, well, then we don't give up. Instead, he says, we've renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. I'm not exactly sure what was going on that predicated what Paul talks about there in verse 2. I don't know exactly what these secret and shameful things were, 
but but clearly if we go back and we look even back in in chapter 3 Paul's sort of vindication of his ministry it seems clear that there were that there were some people that weren't being entirely forthright about the gospel they were even maybe leaving parts out veiling part parts Paul Paul talks about that a little bit later we'll look at it but <clears throat> whatever was going on Paul says one of the ways that we faithfully fulfill the mission is simply by just doing it in a clear and a straightforward way. He says what he's not doing. He doesn't do secret, shameful, deceitful, Bible-distorting stuff. And you can just survey the landscape of your own experience and fill in anything specific there. I don't want to... We've talked about some specific methodologies and ideas that other people have, but I think there are people today who, who operate with secret, shameful, deceitful, distorting ways of trying to ironically draw people into God's kingdom. And they'll let's give them a little bit of God's word, a little bit of the truth, but we're not going to say the things that are difficult. We'll just let them go ahead and belong and begin to build relationships. And then kind of like the Mormon church, which purposely does this, we'll, we'll wait until they're kind of committed and they've got relationships and it'd be really awkward to leave. And then we'll mention some of the kind of weird stuff. You yeah. Know? Well, we, we don't want to do that because there, because there is, I'm not just making fun. There's stuff with, with biblical Christianity that kind of seems like weird stuff, like, like God in human form. Jesus is the son of God. Do we want to sort of hold that back? Cause people are going to think that's weird. Let's get them kind of committed to other stuff. And then eventually we'll mention, oh, by the way, did I mention that Jesus isn't just a prophet, but he's actually the son of God? We don't want to, we don't want to be needlessly offensive. And we certainly want to understand there are difficult things in the Bible that it's not helpful to just say. You know, I think sometimes people say, you know, like mentioning son of God. You know, people say, well, I just say Jesus is the son of God. Well, if people misunderstand that, you haven't communicated faith. You need to tell people that and say, then what I mean by that, what the Bible means by that is not this obscene thing you're thinking of, but this is what the Bible means. You know, we have, we, it's not wrong to define things, but we don't want to be deceitful. We don't want to hide things. We want to, to be as open and forthright as God is, is his word. And Paul says that that's how he commends himself to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us if we want to be faithful in fulfilling the mission that God's given us? Well, if you're a pastor, I think it means that you want to be careful about who you would, would select, as the church in Jerusalem did, and send. You want to make sure there are people that are faithful that are clear. You want to make sure that in our own ministry, we're going to try to walk that line of wisdom between, you know, there's the, there's the sort of branch of preaching and Christianity that sort of goes for shock value. I, I'm, not, I'm not really fond of that camp. But then there's the other side that tries to sort of smooth off the edges and not be clear. Well, I, think, I think what Paul's commending here is what we should do, that 
we should make sure that the way we're commending ourselves to others is not by sort of hiding anything that would be difficult. We certainly don't want to be needlessly offensive either. But we want to commend ourselves by an open display of the truth. I should encourage you, both pastors and those of you that are here as missionaries, would you, is that how you would categorize the way you're thinking about the work you're doing? Are you trying to, are you trying to put the truth on display? Or are you trying, because of concerns or contextualization or safety or security, are you trying to sort of put some bits of the truth back here for later, kind of make the most attractive ones come out first? Is that how you're trying to commend yourself to others? Are you trying to commend yourself by being honest and forthright and transparent? You know, I've appreciated people who, whose gospel call, whether it's in a cross-cultural setting or not, where their gospel call is both, both clear about the costliness of the gospel and clear about the urgency of the gospel. Do, are we communicating both of those things? Are we saying, you know, following Jesus will be costly. It's costly everywhere. It's costly in places where, you know, it might cost people their lives, but it's costly everywhere. It may cost relationships. Sometimes it costs jobs. Sometimes it costs standing. It's always costly to follow Jesus. Are we being honest about the fact that it's costly, but then also being faithful and saying, but it's worth it, and it's urgent, and it demands a response? If you're, if you're a missionary, I think it means being very careful about anything that involves the word rapid. I haven't thought of anything yet that I'm in favor of that includes the word rapid. It just doesn't seem to be the right attitude, I'm afraid. So you can sort that out for yourselves, but, but be careful about how you're thinking. Are you, is your goal clarity or the comfort of your listeners? And I think it's, it's good as pastors to recognize that we bear a responsibility that, that may be more significant than we like to think. When it comes to our, those that we would support and partner with, I think sometimes pastors feel like, well, you know, it's, it's off somewhere else. I don't have perfect information. They seem like a nice person. I'm just going to kind of hope for, a, hope for the best. Well, we want to be large-hearted, but it, I've always found it interesting that John the Apostle wrote two letters, Second and Third John, that to me always sort of feel like two sides of a coin. You've got, you've got Third John that's telling us, you know, that we should be careful and that we should support faithful workers who've gone out for the sake of the name. They're not charging money for the gospel. You know, they've purposefully gone to try to share the gospel and see churches planted. You know, people that are sent out like that, we ought to support them so that we can be you know, co-workers, co-laborers with the truth. That's good. You flip it over and read Second John, and he says that you need to be careful because you're going to be held responsible for the kind of people that you support. And if you even greet someone who's unfaithful, you share in their evil work, he says. So 
We need to be careful and be thoughtful. Well, we also need to recognize when we think about how to do our work faithfully, we need to recognize who we are and who we're not. And Paul keeps writing about that in 2 Corinthians. If you pick up again in verse 3, he says, defending his own gospel preaching, he says, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly what Paul was being accused of about his gospel being veiled. Maybe they were saying he wasn't being clear enough or he wasn't getting the right results, or I'm not sure. But he says, you know, if, if our gospel is not producing the results that some might want, if it, seems, if it seems like it's veiled, well, it's veiled to those that are perishing because God's blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He says in verse 5 that he's not, he's not proclaiming himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord and himself as a servant to them for Jesus' sake. And whatever else this passage may mean, I think one thing that's easy to take from it is that that we are called to be servants and to be faithful, all things that you'd probably expect us to say, and you probably already know, but just to be reminded that, that we're called to be faithful, and God's the one who brings the fruit. Like that's That's one of those things that, of course, people have said that a whole bunch, but it just it bears repeating and repeating and repeating because we are so tempted to give up, to change the message, to try different techniques. You know, it's, it's fine to be creative, I suppose. I've never been accused of being creative, so maybe this, this is not you know, one of my great temptations. But you know, I delight in the fact that that while I want to be clear and faithful and learn, I'm not called to be creative. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not even in like middle management. You know, I, I've just kind of been told basically what to do. I'm going to try to do it the best I can. I'm going to try to declare what the gospel is. I'm going to try to be faithful in making it clear to people who is and who isn't a Christian through my local church. And then I'm going to trust that God will open the eyes of those that he intends to open, and that I'm just going to keep on doing what I've been told to do. And, and we do that not, you know, like some assembly line worker just sort of trudging along, but we do that with great hope. Back in chapter 3, before everything we've read so far, Paul explains very clearly, he says, you know, when the, when the law of Moses is read, there's a veil that covers over people's eyes. He says in verse 16 of chapter 3, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We have work to do. God will make it effective. 
we, we have work to do, God will bring the harvest. He'll bring the increase if we don't give up. Well, we should conclude. I think a good thing to walk away from all of this is just remembering that the same God, just as Paul said, the same God who shined the light of the gospel in our hearts can shine the light of the gospel on whomever he chooses, whenever he chooses. We do what God says, and we leave the results to him. We need to know what we're doing. We need to know who we are. It helps us to know why we're doing this. We need to understand who it is that finally makes it effective. But once we know those things, then I think we just remind ourselves of the hope that we have. And we just continue on with boldness and clarity, understanding that that God will deal with the belief problem if we just labor to deal with the clarity problem. I love the words of the old British preacher, Charles Bridges. He wrote a book called The Christian Ministry. Uh, I end up reading and quoting from it a lot. He has a wonderful reflection on this. Uh, He says this, thinking of the work of the gospel ministry. He says, faith and patience will be exercised, sometimes severely so. But after a painstaking, weeping seed time, we shall bring our sheaves with rejoicing and lay them upon the altar of God, that the offering of them up might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we must beware of saying, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. The measure and the time are with the Lord. We must let him alone with his own work. Ours is the care of service. His is the care of success. The Lord of the harvest must determine when and what and where the harvest shall be. So friends, in one sense, it's not that complicated. Ours ours is to read and to listen and to obey. We don't know when the harvest will come, but hopefully we know who we are and what we're told to do and why we do it. And based on the character of God, we can trust him to take care of the success. And we can do it with joy and with great hope.